Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My guest today is Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research. I've known Corey for a few years and I discovered him years ago reading some of the super smart research that he was putting out. The thing that really stands out about Corey is his risk-forward approach to investing. Uh, everyone distrusts backtest, but Corey uh, has elevated his distrust in it to an art form or at least an investment philosophy. He's really taken to heart Richard Feynman's famous proclamation proclamation that the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Uh, or in other words, as Tony Montana said it in Scarface, don't get high on your own supply. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. So it, it takes an enormous number of backtests to get that kind of uh, distrust of backtests and so I want to know, um, how did you develop that distrust and um, how do people fool themselves with back tests? Yeah, this is, this is a rabbit hole. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. This is just a rabbit hole. We could, I mean, you could just stop now and if you want, I can go on for an hour. Um, but this, this is one of those areas where I think people are very fooled by back tests because they seem very scientific. And I think unless you really have a, a deep history with back tests, they seem very deterministic. Like this was the process, this is the outcome, and and it is trustworthy. Uh, and I think that I see that most often with the community I work with of financial advisors who might be looking at the newest smart beta product and, and trying to evaluate how it does and saying, oh, it did better than this other product that came out in the back test, therefore it must be superior. And the way I, I often try to draw the connection for them to get a, a better understanding of a back test is... I say, look, you, you run Monte Carlo simulations for your clients all the time, right? When you do financial planning, imagine if you went to a client, ran a Monte Carlo simulation and picked out the very best possible simulation for their financial plan, showed it to them and said, here's a back test of your financial plan. It seems sort of ludicrous, but in a way, that's a lot of what comes to market with back tests is, is this very, um, unfortunately data mined um, unsophisticated approach to bringing something to market. And it's taken as if it's some, uh, wonderfully deterministic scientific process when in reality, there's all sorts of uncertainty around it. And I don't think that uncertainty is really appreciated by those, uh, who it's being presented to. We, uh, you know, we do a lot of back tests as well. And when, when, um, the, the purpose of a back test, aside from sort of presenting it to somebody else, you're, you're trying to learn, something yourself which of these metrics is the better metric and that's something that you've been uh you've been critical of in the sense that uh you'd rather not choose one single metric you say let's look at several different ones and you've also said that um rebalancing is is something delicate and there's something uh you have to be very careful when you're determining which rebalancing data so can you just expand on that a little bit yeah so so the very um sort of 
naive analogy I use when it comes to building a portfolio is there's ingredients and then there's a recipe. Uh, the ingredients are some of those sort of signals you talked about. Is it better to use price to book? Is it better to use enterprise value to EBITDA when trying to come up with value signals? And then there's the recipe, which is, well, how often do we look at these signals? How do we rank stocks? How do we weight stocks? Um, and ultimately, it takes both the ingredients and the recipe to bake the final cake that we're ultimately going to serve. Uh, and both of them can have a tremendous impact. I think very often in the industry, we're very focused on what's the secret sauce, which tends to be the signals. Um, but very often it is in the recipe uh, that we determine how consistently we meet our objective. It's, it's in the recipe where we add extra constraints into what we're doing to try to hedge our uncertainty. And a lot of that area of research goes very overlooked. I do want to go back to something you said, though, which is, you know, we backtest to learn. And I think one of the thing that, things that often goes overlooked with backtests is people look at a backtest as evidence of something. And I think, to me, if you're looking at a backtest as evidence, you've already sort of lost the battle. Um, ultimately, what you should be looking for with a backtest is first, the evidence should come from the process. We should believe, for example, that buying cheap stocks should outperform expensive stocks. And we should have in some sort of economic intuition as to why that is. And then what we should look for in a back test when we evaluate it is not something that works all the time, but we want to see the warts. We want to see where it fails. And we want to make sure those periods of failure line up with our intuition. You know, a value strategy should underperform in the dot-com bubble. If someone presents to you a value strategy that does well during the dot-com era, you really have to scratch your head and say, is this value, right? And I think a lot of that goes over, look, people sort of design in the rear view and they have these you know, I see it all the time, tactical strategies that are supposedly trend following and somehow magically get back in at the bottom of 2009. I'm sorry, you're not trend following if you got back in March 2009. All the trends were negative. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of what we should be doing with a back test is not confirming. It's not uh, it's not confirming evidence. It is simply trying to look at different scenarios and see how a lot of these things play out. Um, but to your point, uh, you said there's a lot of these signals, a lot of the recipe, so much of that can affect a back test. And, and again, I think it goes often overlooked. And to your point, um, rebalancing is one that I'm more than happy to talk about, uh, can have a really dramatic impact. And that's one of those little tiny details that really goes overlooked. So that is one that I find, uh, I find that particularly interesting. And it's something that uh, you may not be familiar with it if you, if you haven't looked at a very large number of back tests that and there are lots of different ways to deal with uh, rebalancing. And this is something that I've learned from you that, um, you know, you don't have to rebalance your entire portfolio on a quarterly or annual or half yearly basis. You, a smarter approach might be to break the portfolio up into a, uh, into a number of sort of sub portfolios and then rebalance each on a, on a different date. But then each is still a quarterly or monthly or annual, whatever the rebalancing date is, but you're only rebalancing one fraction of the portfolio on that date. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And, you know, this is something that um, came up for me because my background is being a quant. So all of our strategies are very systematic in nature where we have very defined rebalance processes. I, I think this sort of nuance often gets hidden when you have a more discretionary manager who might be more opportunistic in their buying or selling. But when you have a very systematic process, um, what you can see is that 
the opportunities presented to the strategy is going to be very much driven by when does the strategy rebalance. So let's use just a very simple example. Let's pretend we have two value strategies, deep value strategies. They're trying to buy the junkiest stocks out there. And one of them rebalances at the end of the year, every December and holds the stocks through the rest of the year. And the other one rebalances at the end of June. And I think when you think of that, even though they're identical strategies applying the same process, it's very easy to understand that, well, the opportunities that are available in the market in December might be considerably different than what you see in June, particularly the more concentrated your portfolio is. The more you're willing to hold just a few super deep stocks, deep value stocks, those few super deep value stocks can change dramatically in six months. Uh, and so you can end up with very materially different performance, even though both strategies are ultimately trying to achieve the same thing. So I actually just wrote a paper about this and I tried to distill it to maybe the most naive example, which is just a static 60, 40 portfolio. And what we tend to see with a lot of advisors as they rebalance their client portfolios once a year. And so what I wanted to show was, look, even something as simple and naive as a static 60-40 rebalanced once a year can be subject to this tremendous amount of timing luck, which is what I call it. And the example that I showed was if you have a 60-40 portfolio that rebalanced at the end of every, every February versus one that rebalanced every August, somewhat arbitrary dates, but it, it'll make sense in a second, the performance disparity in any given year is normally about 50 basis points, and it's pretty random. But if you looked at the one-year performance disparity from March 2009 to March 2010, it was 700 basis points, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. It was a, it was a contrived example, but it was because the portfolio that rebalanced at the end of February almost perfectly market-timed the bottom, rolling back into equities versus the one that rebalanced in August was the furthest away from that 60-40 mix you could get. Um, and so what you saw was by rebalancing right into equities near the bottom and having them rip back uh, versus the delayed rebalance that took place six months later, uh, you ultimately saw a really big difference in the performance that was materialized. And it's not something you expect to mean revert. It's not necessarily something you expect that that August portfolio is going to recapture from the February portfolio at a later date. Uh, and so it's one of those tiny details that often goes overlooked. But when we talk about managers getting hired or fired after a three or five year evaluation period, that can be the difference. That's amazing. And it's uh, it's something that we... Uh, we looked at not not rebalancing. This is sort of, we wrote uh, quantitative value uh, well before um, I had heard of that idea. But what we were we were conscious of that uh, the January effect is a very well known sort of uh, equity. Uh, there's a little bump in January because I think the idea is that there's for, for value stocks particularly there's some tax loss selling at the end of in December to to try to capture those short term losses and then rebuy in January. And so they see a little bump. And if you assume that you've bought ahead of that, then or you, you, you capture that, then you do fairly well. You've also got the, uh, the reporting, the, 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 the uh, annual reports come out a little bit later than that, but then you're sort of uh, assuming that you're trading on that. So we tried to rebalance in June using K, using the year-end data. So it was six months old. So that's a, it's a slightly different effect that it's capturing but it is material when we looked at different balancing rebalancing dates that we could have included and one of them 
if you're rebalancing on a quarterly basis, then you do capture that March. You're close to the bottom in that March rebalance, and that's a good one. You also capture the, the, the January rebalance date. So you do see some better performance. Um, this is uh, reasonably heady stuff, and I see it in your, your research papers. Uh, um, uh, very well thought out, very thoughtful sort of research papers. I'm sort of interested to know how you got to that point. How did you start out as an investor? What's your what's your uh, academic background? Yeah, you know, I I think with a lot of these things, there's a lot of nature and a lot of nurture, right? Um, I sort of tripped and fell into finance, but my my approach to finance has always been one that's been very risk based. So instead of the pursuit of returns. I've always had this sort of view of how can I try to control my unintended bets? Um, how can I try to control the things that are going to be the most damaging to my portfolio? Uh, again, I think part of that's nurture. Uh, as embarrassing as this is to admit, my parents, their nickname for me when I was younger was Safety Boy. <laughs> I was never the kid running around the pool. I always had my swimmies on, you know? Um, so I think just very naturally, I'm a, I'm a risk-adverse person, and I look for those areas where well, what is the unintended bet I'm taking? How could this go wrong? From a nurture perspective, when I was in graduate school, I, I attended Carnegie Mellon's Master's of Science in Computational Finance. And it's a sort of a cross-disciplinary program um, all about pricing complex derivatives. And as I was going through that program, I noticed this sort of repeat formula, formulaic approach that we were taking, which was trying to identify a risk trying to isolate it, extract it, package it into some derivative, um, and then price it and trade it away. And that the, the price you were paying was ultimately a transfer of that risk. And, and what it ultimately did was it sort of informed my view around finance that everything we do in finance is not really about the pursuit of return. It's actually about the transfer of risk. Who's willing to bear it? Um, and therefore they should earn a premium or at least expect to earn a premium for bearing that risk and who's trying to get rid of it and is therefore willing to earn a little less. Um, and so I think for me, those two experiences, both, both sort of the nature side of it and the nurture side of it led me down this path where, as you mentioned, I, I write a lot of very sort of maybe heady quantitative material, um, a little wonkish by nature, but a lot of it sort of circles the drain on these topics of, well, how do we think about managing risk? Um, can you do it with correlation? Can you do it with different types of payoffs with these different style premio or trend following, um, different ways of designing a portfolio? Um, what is what is sort of the opportunity timing aspect of it that we need to be aware of? And all those things have some interaction effects. Um, they all sort of culminate to how much diversification you're trying to take advantage of in the portfolio. And then it's all about the trade-off of what do we have confidence in? Where do we think we have an edge and we want to bear risk versus what risks do we really think aren't worth bearing and how should we think about diversifying those away? When you, uh, when you came to launch your firm, is, is, was that something that you thought would be a, it's, it is rare to, to hear somebody risk first is an unusual approach. Most people are sort of, most firms come out thinking that they've found some, uh, some trick to the market that there's something that others are missing. You guys, you, you're risk first. That's the first thing that you see on your webpage that your risk is the, uh, is, is your focus. Yeah. And it, and it was from day one. And, uh, 
you know, again, embarrassing to admit, I sort of tripped and fell into this business. We, we just passed a decade of being in the business, but it wasn't something I had actually intended to start a, a, my own business in. What had really happened was when I was younger, when I was in undergrad, I was actually um, sort of doing a, an internship for my father's financial advisor a couple days a week. It was one of a couple internships I held at the time. And one of my jobs was to interview different managers. So this was around 2007. And this small cap value manager came in the door and ran a mutual fund. And before the meeting really started, I just sort of asked him what he thought of the market. And again, summer 2007 had the most bearish outlook of anyone I'd ever heard. Just said we were headed for this horrible recession, um, you know, batting down the hatches. It's going to get ugly. And I was a little taken aback. Um, most people at that time, you know, if, in retrospect, the, the cracks were showing, but most people I spoke to weren't that emphatic about it. And so I said, Oh, wow, what are you going to do? And he said, Well, I'm a small cap value manager. Uh, I manage a mutual fund that needs to be 95% invested by mandate. And you want to, I don't even know who's invested in my mutual fund. So what I'm going to do is just give the best small cap value exposure I can. Um, and you want to know what, if it's not the right exposure, it's really should be up to the financial advisor or the individual to determine whether they should be in the portfolio or not. I said, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? He doesn't know who's invested. Who is he to say, you know, hey, now is not the time for small cap if someone wants small cap, if that's what they're buying. So after the meeting, I go to my father's financial advisor and I sort of relay the conversation. I say, you know, what are your thoughts? And he said, well, I think that's crazy. You know, how am I supposed to know whether it's a good or bad time to be in small cap value? That's why I hire an expert. And I'm sitting there looking, thinking to myself, like, you got two people pointing the finger at each other as to who is ultimately responsible for managing risk. And risk in this sense really being, you know, managing that, that how much downside participation are you going to have? Who is ultimately responsible for saying, I lost the money and it's on my shoulders? And so I looked at my very paltry sum of life savings that I had invested in the market and said, all right, I got to figure out how I'm going to manage risk. And it's sort of ultimately evolved into this research endeavor. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of what I was researching were different trend following techniques and designing trend following portfolios um, and ultimately started newfound research uh, because I was uh, asked to license some of that research I had done to another firm. Um, and so it really started as, as a research firm. But again, always about at its very core that aspect of how do I manage risk. Do you remember what the small cap manager was looking at, why he, he thought that the market was so toppy? I don't. I don't. I will tell you a funny story, though. I was once at a conference and I had told that story uh, to someone else, the, the person who was supposed to introduce me at the conference because I was supposed to speak. And I was planning on using that as my sort of introduction as to who I was. And this guy gets up as in sort of the intermission to prepare and talk, you know, let me come up and talk. And he tells the story as if it happened to him. And, and I'm like, wait, hold on, hold on. This is my story. And this was my whole introduction that I was going to give about me. And he just totally stole my story. And I don't even think he realized he had stolen it. He just like, it was one of those, like, he just sort of passed it off as his own, but he didn't know I had been the one who had told it to him like a week before. And it was one of those like, oh, now I got to come up with an on the, on the fly story. But um, I don't remember who the value manager was. I really wish it. I did. I would love to reach out and just say, like, you don't know how you changed my life in that moment. It's it's one of those things that uh, I'm a value guy, so I think about value a lot. And one thing that I've learned uh, over the 
sort of 20 or so years that I've been looking at the market is that uh, value is a terrible timing tool. And so you, the, the examples that I always give, um, when I sort of, uh, when I started working was the early 2000s, April 2000 was the top of the market for dot-com stocks and they, also, that they all fell over after that. But value did very well through that period. So if you'd been a value guy looking at the market and pulled out, that would have been catastrophic because you would have missed one of the best periods for value. Right. And similarly in 2007, value had had a spectacular run it had been sort of underperforming and it, and it did some catching up. And sort of once again, if you looked at uh, value as a, it just wasn't at all predictive. And any of those measures that Cape, Shilapee, Tobin Q, any of those sort of uh, market level measures, and they look at different things, they'll tell you that the market's very expensive, but that it's kind of meaningless. You can be five years, 10 years beyond the point where the market looks really expensive. And here we are sort of 20 years past the point, more than 20 years past the point where the market first started becoming unusually expensive. There have been some crashes, but we're up a lot over that period and you could have done quite well. Does trend, yeah. do, do those other things give you a better insight? Does trend or momentum, do you feel like there's any more in that? You know, I think, I think you bring up a, a couple really good points. Um, the first is that I think it's very hard to look at a particular factor and say it's going to do something in a given market environment. Every market environment is different by definition. Um, I think the null hypothesis we should generally hold is that the market is right. Um, you know, we are, there's a lot of hyper competitive, very intelligent individuals that are involved in the markets. And if it were easy to make money, everyone would be rich. But the reality is we're all competing, making the market more efficient. Uh, which ultimately benefits everyone, right, to have more efficient, transparent prices. Uh, but at the end of the day, it does make it harder for any of those individual signals to have meaning. Does trend or momentum necessarily have more insight? Uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things that you see with something like trend uh, is that it has historically um, been a great predictor of short-term future returns, right? So if you have positive returns over the last, call it six to 12 months, you tend to get positive returns statistically over the next couple months. Similarly, if you see negative returns, you tend to get future negative returns. Um, and so, you know, some of it is, look, you can't have a bear market without continuous negative returns. It's very hard to sort of have that without it, um, especially a prolonged bear market. So there's a bit of intuitive sense there that you're going to see a negative trend. Um, doesn't necessarily mean trend following will be successful, right? You can get whipsawed along the way on the way down, depending on how the uh, sort of the path dependent nature of it. But I do think what the evidence has suggested um, is that something like trend following can be a great confirmation to other signals. So if you think the market's overvalued, uh, just timing on value alone really hasn't been very successful. But if you look at times when the market's overvalued and you start to see negative trends, well, then all of a sudden the, the signals become a lot more effective in combination historically because you're not only getting a negative trend, but you might have a real catalyst for valuation contraction, that the market may lose its sort of um, enthusiasm for risk. It might sort of just everyone might say you want to know what we don't have as rosy an outlook or everyone just doesn't want to hold securities and when everyone decides they want to sell the reality is 
there's no sort of ever money on the sideline. Every stock that's sold is bought to entice someone to buy. You have to see um, a deflation in price, an increase in those valuation multiples or a decrease in the valuation multiples um, to entice someone to, to ultimately buy in. And so you see that risk appetite decline. Um, and that's when you get sort of the, the valuation reset. I think uh, trend is a little bit like value over the last 10 years. It's, uh, it's been whipsawed a lot and it doesn't really, whichever version of it you prefer, if you like the 200 day or you like a simple moving average or an exponential moving average, whatever you'd like to apply. Um, Any time that it's basically suggested that you hedge, that's been a bad time to do it for the last decade, roughly. So trend is a little bit, in my opinion, trends a little bit like value. You sort of have to believe that at some stage it's going to start working again. It does tend to, that's, that's not unusual behavior for it to underperform the unhedged market right up to the point that the market tips over. And then it's that cascading behavior of the, of the decline of the drawdown that sort of somehow the 200 day sort of plucks it out at that stage. And then you, you, hopefully you miss the bulk of the decline. You might miss a little bit of the bounce too. Yeah, you know, trends are really interesting one. So so I think when people talk about trend, a lot of what we focus on at Newfound is what we would call trend equity, which is applying different trend following models very specifically to equity markets. That's sort of our flagship um, offering. And so in that sense, what we're trying to sort of capture is, um, you know, how can we participate as fully as possible with equity market upside? avoid those significant and prolonged drawdowns. But you do see it in sort of the the multi-asset trend following stuff as well that's really struggled over the last four or five years due to sort of um, even where it's caught trends in some markets, it's getting whipsaw in others. What I think is really interesting about trend and the reason we really emphasize it as a style at the firm is it's very it's one of the very, very few trading strategies um, that has a positive skew a convex payoff. So what we mean by that is where most trading strategies, going back to this sort of risk-based thinking, you are earning a premium because you're willing to bear risk, um, which means that you tend to harvest these sort of small alphas uh, at the risk of a big negative left tail. And that's true for a lot of the economic premia. So when you buy stocks, you're sensitive to growth and inflation shocks. You're bearing the risk of uncertain future cash flows, and hopefully the the you know you're going to get a premium for bearing that risk. But when events like 2008 happen, you're bearing the downside. So what you tend to see is, yep, the whole return distribution has shifted a little bit to the right. Your expected return is positive, but when you look at sort of the shape of the distribution, it's got a big uh, sort of asymmetric left tail. That is true for almost every investment strategy out there, whether it's value investing, um, more esoteric stuff like carry, most active approaches, you there's sort of this um, negative skew that goes along with it, this concave payoff. You're harvesting a small alpha, and to use sort of a, uh, an analogy, it's that picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. Trend following is the opposite, and it's a little weird. Trend following um, tends to have a lot of small losses along the way and then one big payoff. And so from that perspective, I think it can be really, really useful as a diversifier in the portfolio, right? One, like Instead of your traditional correlation-based diversification, it's sort of this payoff-based diversification that everything tends to have concave payoffs. This is a big convex payoff, and so you can get some diversification in that sense. 
but it doesn't mean it's not really frustrating to hold along the way. That when you say to someone, hey, 90% of the time, 80% of the time, we're going to be taking small losses and you're going to get whipsawed and you're not going to participate fully. And nine out of 10 years, you're going to hate me as your manager. But in that one year or two years that there are big positive trends or big negative trends, that's where we really tend to shine historically. You know, that's the sort of thing that I think sounds good on paper. Um, but when it actually comes to building a portfolio and sticking with a portfolio and having a sustainable portfolio, uh, can often be really, really tough for people to incorporate. That little bit of underperformance makes it, makes it feel like it isn't working to the point right. where it actually starts working. Exactly. And, I, you, have, and you need them in there, right? At that, at that time. Exactly. And, the, and part of the problem is you just don't know when it's going to kick in, right? If it were wholly obvious when the end of the cycle is, I'd say, well, don't hold any trend following, right? Don't buy fire insurance until you know your house is going to burn down. <laughs> the problem is it's normally an unexpected event, right? If everyone sort of knew, it's almost self-fulfilling. If everyone knew the market was going to sell off next year, everyone would try to exit before that. It would cause the market to sell off, blah, blah, blah. The reality is nobody knows when the next economic crisis is going to unfold. And I'll go so far as to say is there doesn't have to be one, as crazy as that sounds. I know everyone's sort of talking end of cycle, and I think there's all sorts of potential catalysts for an end of cycle. Um, but there have been periods in markets where you can go 20, 30 years with benign to positive performance um, and without any really significant drawbacks. And in which case, you're going to look back in 20 years and go, wow, I really wish I hadn't paid that insurance cost. Right. But you're not going to know till after. And I think um, that sort of thinking isn't prudent necessarily going forward where you, you sort of like saying, well, I'm not going to, you know, put fire insurance on my house because I don't think the house is going to burn down. Well, yeah, you might get lucky. But was that really better thinking? Was that really the right thing to do? Um, probably not. So how, how do you take these um these risk-based philosophies and this sort of uh, diversification agnostic, uh, and I mean, sorry, I mean, diversification in the sense of strategies, diversification in the sense of rebalancing, risk-focused, how, do you, how does that then manifest as strategies in your firm? Yeah, so maybe the simplest example would be sort of our, our flagship strategy, which is our risk-managed U.S. sector strategy. Um, and what we're going to do there again is this is what we call a trend equity strategy where we're going to try to participate as fully as possible uh, in the sort of economic growth of U.S. equities, U.S. large cap equities. And then we're going to try to use trend following to avoid those significant and prolonged market declines. I like to emphasize the significant and prolonged trend following as a category, as a style and investment style doesn't tend to do well in, in market environments like 1987, those significant, you know, sort of one-off drops. What we're really talking about tend to be um, economically induced sell-offs. So your things like your 2000s, your 2008s, where the market takes time to digest some news, trends emerge. They tend to be 6, 12 to 18 months in length, and that tends to be where these sort of strategies do well. So how does it really manifest? Well, again, what I like to think about is where, how can we add diversification in the portfolio? Diversification to what we're investing in, so this sort of correlation-based diversification. Diversification to how we're investing, how we're making these decisions about the trends. And then diversification in um, when we're looking at trends, the opportunities we're seeing. 
So under the hood, instead of just investing in large cap U.S. equities, we're going to look at different sectors. And the reason we like to split it up among different sectors uh, is because uh, despite all the problems with with sector based classification, you do tend to find um, that they act as individual groups. That if I tell you a company uh, is an energy company uh, and I tell you how energy stocks did on a given day, you tend to have a good sense of, of how that stock did. The groups of fish tend to swim together. Um, and yet as a whole, they make up the market. And so they tend to have a at least a, a positive to very positive correlation. But there's still a bit of diversification opportunity there. Then what we're going to do is we're going to run trend following models on all these different sectors. And it depends on which um, you know, model we're delivering to a client or the fund uh, that anyone's investing in. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of those sectors and apply a trend-following model and determine whether we're in or out of that given sector. Uh, when there's positive trends, we tend to increase our exposure. And when there's negative trends, we want to decrease our exposure, if not outright remove a sector. So if we can't find any positive trends on, you know, call it a three to 12 month horizon with a variety of different models, you're probably going to see that that sector is completely removed from the portfolio. We're going to typically take that capital and try to reinvest it, right? With the idea that over the long run, you expect to earn a premium for holding equities, uh, that equity, uh, equity risk premium. And so we don't want to just necessarily go to cash. We want to stay invested as long as possible. Um, and, but what will happen is once we start to see a large number of those sectors fall out of the portfolio, um, we'll put a hard cap. So typically around 20%, again, depending on the mandate that we deliver to a client, um, how risk averse they are, but typically around 20%, which means that once you get four or fewer of the 10 primary sectors exhibiting positive trends, now we're going to start to have cash short-term treasuries in the portfolio. And in fact, if we have no trends across any sectors, we're completely out. So we can go 100% to cash. Now, the final element is, okay, when are you reevaluating? And again, that's somewhat mandate-specific. Um, but what we're trying to do is not just reevaluate all the same models end of month or something like that. Uh, in all of the mandates that we deliver... Um, what we are trying to do is recognize that the opportunity to look at trends may change dramatically, whether we are looking end of month, mid month, you know, the fourth day of the month, the 17th day of the month. Um, so again, depending on our ability to control trading, we might under the hood rebalance almost every single day, um, where we're just going to make a little change to the portfolio, sort of dollar cost average. All of our trend changes a little bit. Um, with other mandates, it might be a, we're going to look mid-month and end of month, and at least then we're getting sort of this bi-monthly view, and we'll rebalance half the portfolio mid-month and half of end of month. But the idea there, again, is we're never so concentrated on a single point in time uh, to rebalance our entire portfolio. So that's determining um, whether you're in or out of a given sector, but are you then, how do you use value? How do you use momentum? How do you use carry? Is that then for the selection of the individual securities that go into the portfolio? So that all depends again on, on the mandate. This is sort of top level. Our flagship most vanilla trend equity strategy is just pure trend. Um, we're not including any of those other elements. Those other elements come into play in other portfolios that we offer. But I think from sort of the our most popular offering perspective, it really is delivering that very pure 
trend following um, objective because it doesn't have the risk of getting diluted with any of the other styles that can come in. And again, we are delivering that very pure convex style of payoff versus those other styles can then introduce um, the concavity. So what we're actually implementing with, with most of these portfolios is very low cost, very um, cost efficient ETFs. Right. So we'll use ETFs to implement all the different sectors. Um, and most of those are just pure beta. Right. So I'm a, I'm a value guy and I know you have a value strategy. Can we, we talk about your value strategy a little bit? How do you, what sort of signals do you use? Uh, what's the recipe? What's the, what's the magic pudding look like? Yeah. So this is, this is one it's pure in-house. So this is not an offered strategy that we really have. Um, but it's one that we've been running for quite a while for the partners at the firm. Um, and it sort of came about just simply asking the question, if we who are typically sort of a more top-down tactical shop were to build a bottom-up security selection portfolio, how would we think about doing it? Um, and a lot of it came back to this idea of what we were seeing was a lot of these value portfolios, especially systematic smart beta value portfolios in the market, rebalance once a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and they rebalance to me in a way that makes them incredibly sensitive to this sort of timing luck. Um, there's a great paper out there that you can link to in the show notes if you're going to do show notes, um, written that talks about the timing luck that the research affiliates fundamental indexing strategy was subject to in 2009. Uh, and the paper shows that if that index, which I believe rebalanced in March was instead rebalanced in September, uh, the performance disparity would have been something like a thousand basis points wow. in that one year. Right. And that's pretty meaningful. Now, I know uh, Rob Arnott would disagree with my coloring of fundamental indexing as being a value strategy. To me, it's a value strategy. Um, so it tells you, at least to me, value is very much affected by this decision. So that was one of the first big things that sort of made us say, well, if we're going to do this, that's one of the first things we want to address is this idea of when are we making the decisions? How are we um, sort of more continuously pursuing this opportunity over time. Then the second part is again, going back to this, okay, which signals are we using? Are you using the signals across the entire market? So am I looking, you know, for example, at, uh, just to use sort of the academic expression, price the book, um, across the entire market and picking the cheapest stocks, or am I looking at, you know, other models that I think might be better. Am I looking at within an industry? So I'm going to look at sort stocks by price to book within financials, and then I'm going to go look in energy and sort them by price to book. Um, all of those are sort of, to me, again, open questions about which one works best. I think plenty of people at this point would say price to book probably isn't the best metric to use anymore. Fine, I can buy that. Um, but do you look cross market? Do you not? I think another open question was, does it make sense to be sector neutral in your implementation or does it not? What you tend to see with sort of these, what I would call generation one value strategies, things like Russell 1000 versus Russell 1000, excuse me, Russell 1000 value versus Russell 1000 growth is that they are sector unconstrained, which means that Russell 1000 value is pretty much just a bet on your financial stocks. And Russell 1000 growth is really just a bet on technology stocks. 
and there's really no impact of value stock picking at all when you compare those sectors. It's, uh, excuse me, compare those indices. It is a pure sector bet, which defeats the purpose of, of the value composition. So all of these things are sort of swirling around, right? When are we making these, these decisions? How are we sort of um, smoothing the, the decisions over time? What signals are we using? And then how do we think about this idea of unconstrained versus constrained, right? Because constrained tends to do very well uh, during calm market environments when you don't have a sector or industry group that's exhibiting bubble-like characteristics. But on the other hand, it's great to be unconstrained in the dot-com era. So how do you sort of navigate all this? So my view has sort of always been if I can't confidently choose one way or another based on the evidence, diversify, right? So again, if I don't know whether it's better to be constrained or unconstrained, if I don't know whether it's better to use multiple signals uh, or any given signal versus another, I should probably use multiple. If I don't know whether it makes sense to look at them cross market or within an industry group, do both. Um, and so that's ultimately the way a lot of our sort of systematic value strategy works. So starting with the S&P 500, because that's going to be our universe, um, just as, the, as an example here, what we're going to do is we're going to rank stocks on a number of value factors. So we're going to look at things like price to book, price to earnings, price to free cash flow, enterprise value to EBITDA, a number of different factors that have demonstrated success and might touch on you know, different parts of how you would define value. And we're going to do that both across the entire market as well as within each industry group and aggregate that up all into different value scores. Um, then what we're going to do is once we have all of our value scores, we're going to try to pick the deepest value stuff. So say the bottom 100, and then we're going to try to pick them in a way that we end up getting to a place of more sector neutrality. So if I can choose in the bottom 100, a completely sector neutral portfolio, great. But if for whatever reason there's a given sector or industry that doesn't show up at all, it's not in the bottom 20% of cheapest stuff, well, then I can't get to sector neutral. And that's sort of my model telling me, hey, this is a little bit of a bubble potentially in that sector. So we'll avoid, avoid it entirely. Um, then once we've got sort of the stocks we're picking, uh, we narrow it down to 50 concentrated stocks. Then the question is, well, how do we weight them? We have our 50. We know they should sort of be industry neutral. Uh, should we equal weight? Should we, um, you know, value tilt them? Should we market cap weight them? Should we run an optimization? Again, I think there's ample evidence for all of it. So that's what we do. We do all of it. We run a model that's equal weight. We run a model that's more of a sort of, um, uh, excuse me, uh, mean variance optimization, sort of a sharp optimization. We run one that's a value tilt. We run one that's even a quality tilt. We blend that, that all together. So there's a lot of like moving pieces, right? But the whole overarching philosophy here is when I don't know, diversify. Um, and it doesn't necessarily dilute, right? Again, I'm not, I'm not diluting how much value I have by using multiple value signals. What I'm trying to do is dilute my specification risk. I'm trying to stick with the style of value without necessarily making a, a hard choice, yes or no, about a given implementation. So at the end of the day, at the end of each month, what I have is a value portfolio. Then the question becomes, well, how often do I rebalance this thing? And how willing am I to kick things out? So from my perspective, what I tend to find, and I'm perfectly open to arguing this uh, you know, evidence, 
is that value is sort of a, a slow moving phenomenon that you can buy these value stocks and typically the premium doesn't mature for three to five years. Um, you might get lucky and it might mature faster, but but it is a very slow moving decay in the alpha. And so what we say is, well, what we want to do is we want to buy that portfolio almost like it's a PE tranche and hold it for five years. So we're going to have it be one sixtieth of the portfolio. Then the next month, what we're going to do is we're going to take the oldest tranche that we've held for five years, kick it out of the portfolio and buy a new tranche. And we're going to keep doing that so that our the things that we buy, the deep value stuff has enough time to mature. Now, just to make sure we don't really have like, you know, we don't hold on something way too long. Every month we'll also check, well, did anything in all the old tranches where they're you know, corporate actions that changed the picture were there. Um, did something all of a sudden become super overvalued that, Hey, it matured early. Let's get rid of it. Uh, in those cases we do get rid of it. Um, and what therefore you tend to see is you have this nice decay that your early tranches tend to be a bigger part of the portfolio. And then over time your tranches get smaller and smaller and smaller as a proportion of capital until eventually by the end, they've sort of, before you even kick them out, have sort of decayed their way out because things have fully much had time to fully mature. So again, a lot of moving pieces, but the idea for us is when we don't know, let's try to diversify. Let's try to make sure we're not overly emphasizing one style, one recipe of construction. We're not overly emphasizing, um, sector concentration risk versus making sure we're never taking risk. We're not emphasizing any particular rebalance month over another. Um, all of it is trying to diversify while therefore giving us a more pure implementation of, of that value style. And that's sort of a feature of value that it does take a much longer period of time to decay, uh, uh, as you say. And I think I've seen some research that says that any given portfolio out to about five years, I think that the bulk of it's sort of like a, a rubber band. The bulk of the the bulk of the return comes out in the first few years, but you're still getting some additional return all the way out to five years, which is uh, very distinct, very different from momentum, which has a much shorter rebalancing period. And I've seen some interesting research from you, which talks about the relationship between the look back period for momentum, deciding whether something's in or out, and then how long it's held afterwards. Yeah, so this this actually was not um, original research by me. I think the, the piece I wrote was called Momentum's Magic Number. It was inspired by a research piece I saw from HIMCO, and it candidly blew my mind. So typically, there's this concept, right, that you would say, um, we think momentum tends to work from a sort of three to 12-month look-back horizon. So what does that mean? It means if I look at the prior... Um, 12 months, for example, and rank stocks based on those 12 months, the things that perform best should over the short term continue to perform best. Um, you know, it, if I rank them again by six months, those that perform best should in the short term continue to perform best. And the, the typical intuition has been your rebalance period should really be a function of how long you're looking back. Uh, again, acknowledging that this tends to be a very fast decaying signal. So if I'm going to look at 12 months, I might rebalance, I might hold on for another month and say, okay, I'm going to look at 12 months of returns. I expect this rank ordering to be somewhat stable over the next month. But after that, the decay happens really quickly. Um, you know, you might then say, Hey, six months, 
I can't hold on for another 12. I could, I should only hold on for two weeks, you know, sort of proportionately decreasing, um, because I'm using less stable information. So I need to, I need to adapt more quickly. This HIMCO article completely turned that type of thinking on its head. And what it said was actually the evidence suggests that the whole thing, the, the formation period, how long you're looking back, plus how long you hold just sort of kind of needs to add up to around 14 or 15 months. So if you look at a three month formation, which I just said, hey, for that to be stable, it's probably only stable over the next couple of weeks. They're saying, no, it turns out you could probably hold that for another nine to 10 months and it would be totally fine, which I just found to be totally counterintuitive. Um, and they demonstrated it, I believe in that paper with large cap stocks. So I said, all right, I'm going to try it with some countries, uh, country indices. I'm going to try it with sector indices. Does this really hold up? And lo and behold, it really did. Uh, which again is mind blowing to me and goes back to maybe the point we were making at the very beginning about back testing. I have no idea why that works. I was about to say, what's the, what's the driving force of that? That's an unusual it's yeah, odd. it is very odd. Um, and I could not come up with a good economic rationale. I could not come up with a good behavioral rationale. Um, you know, it seemed to me like maybe what was happening was trends tend to persist over that period. Um, 15 months was it. So if you bought, you know, at 12 months, it meant, yeah, you were more certain but you only had le you had less time to hold on versus if you bought it three months, well, maybe you don't want to turn over as quickly. You do. There's still some signal there, right? Cause now you're three of the potential 15. Um, you know, you would then want to say, okay, let me hold on for the remainder of the 12 to watch this play out. That was sort of the best I could come up with, but why do trends last 12 months? What behavioral or risk-based phenomenon is driving that? Um, you know, it might be the same thing that says, well, why, why 12 month look back in the first place? But at the end of the day, trying to, it's very counterintuitive as to why you would look at a very short term look back and hold for a very long period and, and have that be successful. Um, so for me, it's an open question and a very interesting one. Um, but I don't like to build investment strategies for which I cannot come up with a rationale or a reason, because to me, then it's risking some sort of data mind artifact that I'm being fooled by randomness. I was about to say it's a very Talebian, it's a very Nassim Taleb kind of approach to, uh, and it's it's sort of, it's almost a philosophical question. Do you look at the uh, empirical research to make your decisions or do you sort of formulate the idea and then test that idea? I think whichever way you do it, you you you're always going to be finding something that you've got a risk of finding something that doesn't work anymore or never really worked. Yeah, I think I think it sounds wonderful um, and flowery and intuitive to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to I want the economic rationale. Right. Why would I invest in something without the economic rationale? Um, but I think the counter to fooled by randomness is fooled by narrative. Right. What if I discover an anomaly and then come up with a rationale as to why that anomaly works. I mean, am I just fooling myself into believing that narrative? Um, you know, if I come up with a narrative and then 
data mine the facts to fit that narrative? Am I any better off necessarily? So I think it's, it is one of these things as a quant, you know, we, we always sort of try to say, Hey, we're evidence-based. You know, the, the real truth is the amount of evidence we have at our hands is very, very limited. Um, you know, financial markets, there's really just a few driving forces. We've only seen a few big regime shifts over the last 50 years. Um, and, Arguably, some of those regime shifts make prior data totally worthless. I mean, is anything prior to World War II really relevant? Um, the advancements we've seen in technology uh, and access to information and our education about financial markets, you know, really raises the question of is some data and some anomaly that works back in 1910, is that relevant? We tell ourselves yes, and we're looking for this robustness across countries and geo you know, and geographies and asset classes and, and history. Um, and I do think that is a good start, but I think it's always good to keep in the back of our mind. Everyone's looking at the same data. Everyone's looking at the same anomalies. Yeah, that does help with the robustness conclusion. Um, and hopefully there is some economic or behavioral or risk-based intuition to whatever we're trying to harvest. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is it is a limited data set that we keep going back to and trying to trying to mine. And we do run the risk of at a certain point just data mining it to death. It's a, one of the one of the uh, one of the metrics that I find most fascinating is the price to book because that's been such a ubiquitous. It was the def, it's the definition of value, uh, the factor, and it's Famer and French have tracked it for a very long period of time. And the value investor in me says, um, this is something that's probably going to mean revert. It's bound for some return. But then there's some very good research out there by our mutual friends, O'Shaughnessy's, have looked at book to value. They make a very compelling argument that uh, the negative equity, uh, the phenomenon of more companies having negative, negative equity has changed the, the way that the metric analyzes companies. It's no longer really finding that value effect what do you, what do, right. you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, so I, you know, I should caveat all this with, I am not a value investor at heart, despite my, my dabblings and my own personal money. Um, this is, you know, I think it is important to always connect these fundamental metrics back to what they're trying to extract and tell you about the company. Um, but I do think there's a really interesting lesson here. And I wrote about this, I think it was last summer in a piece called factor Fimbulvinter, um, about, this sort of corner we box ourselves into as quants, right? So you look at something like price to book and you say, okay, there's a hundred years plus of us evidence of price to book that gives us some sort of statistical significance that this is an anomaly and therefore we believe it's going to continue. Um, even more so we see that value as a concept works in other asset classes. So we like this idea, this sort of, um, theoretical concept of value investing, buying cheap, selling expensive. Um, we find that price to book works when you look in other countries. We find that price to book works when you compare country indices, right? So there's all this confirming evidence that price to book works. And the problem becomes it's going to be almost impossible to disconfirm it from a statistical perspective. Right. So if I said to you, look, price to book has no more positive premium. You can buy cheap stuff, avoid the expensive stuff. All that's going to happen is you're going to have noise from here on out. There's going to be no positive premium. 
it would take a really, really long time. How long? Well, so it depends on how you, sort of your interpretation. So the piece that I wrote basically said, okay, we're going to use this sort of Bayesian updating. Um, we're going to take all of our prior confidence, and then every year we're going to update our confidence as to whether we think uh, it continues to work. And the way I did that was via simulation, right? Because what happens when a factor breaks is it's not that all of a sudden it, it stops working and you get negative results. When a factor breaks, you get random results. I think that's missed on a lot of people. You could have price to book be broken, and you could go on a 10-year positive streak. Doesn't mean it's not just still broken, just through luck. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard to now disconfirm this stuff. So what I found was you get this distribution, right, of, okay, depending on how things play out, um, it could take, you know, a couple of years or it could take 100 years depending on how the luck unfolds. But the median amount of time, I think, for price to book that it took was around 60 to 70 years. That's that, that, that's crazy. Nobody's got time for that. All right. And all of us are. That's I more mean, than a career. Most of us will be dead. It's, yeah, it's longer than a career. Um, and I, you saw it. And, and this isn't like some theoretical thing. This is something you saw with small caps, right? That when the small cap premium was discovered, it has now taken 30 plus years to sort of statistically disconfirm it. And it's on the cusp. It's not even disconfirmed yet. People are arguing, is it real? Is it not? But, you know, a lot of people would still say it's real. Um, there's a plenty that wouldn't. But and with good reason, the narrative's pretty compelling. These are underfollowed right. stocks. Everybody's looking in a big universe. You can find these things that are um, undervalued. Well, it's not a valuation question, but you, they're just underfollowed. And as they get right. bigger, they'll be They'll attract more investment. And, right. and they have less phenomenon. analysts tracking them. There's lower liquidity, so there's lower competition for, for um, you know, transparency. Um, there's a liquidity premium potentially. There's a lot of great narrative around why small caps, there's more opportunity there um, and why they might deserve a premium. I think you take that and you multiply it by 10 for value. Right. I mean, the magnet, the order of magnitude defending value, I think, is so much more severe than the narrative and evidence supporting small cap. So I think the problem is this is where quants sort of put themselves in, in a, uh, a corner, which is we have ultimately too much evidence supporting price to book that I cannot disconfirm it from a quantitative perspective that I now all of a sudden need to go back to a fundamental argument as to why it's broken um, and a theoretical argument, which is fine, but it, but it is this give and take. It's sort of the sort of science and, and art coming together that makes this so difficult. So just to change pace a little bit, my favorite page from your deck is uh, it's got some of your, uh, some of the things that I've heard you say, some of the things I've seen you tweet out. I think you've got one of these pinned to the very top of your Twitter uh, profile, which, and you're a great follow on Twitter. We'll, We'll get your details out in a moment, but no pain, no premium. Yeah. Yeah. I did actually just wrote a piece this week on no pain, no premium. I saw it. So this is, this is one of those, um, you know, it goes back to the old no pain, no gain. It's just a, it's just a play on that. But at the end of the day, it goes back to this risk-based mindset we were talking about at the beginning, which is a lot of people are pursuing returns. And I, and I think often forget that the null hypothesis is that return, expected return, comes from bearing some sort of risk. And whenever you're evaluating a strategy or a trade or 
anything, you should be asking, what is the risk that I'm bearing um, or conceptually bearing that someone else wants to get rid of this? I'm willing to buy it. Am I being paid enough for that risk if that risk occurs? Um, and I think all too often we get caught up in the pursuit of return and the potential alpha something generates. But I think when you look at things through a risk-based lens, you really start to be able to build potentially better portfolios by looking at, okay, what risks am I insuring when I buy equities? What risks am I insuring when I buy bonds? Um, commodities, what risks am I insuring when I buy a carry strategy? When I do trend following? And how do these all interplay with each other um, to create a more consistent return profile. I do think it ultimately, like to me, the biggest philosophical, um, the most interesting sort of philosophical aspect of the no pain, no premium uh, mentality is that diversification uh, taken to its extreme limit, still, there still has to be pain left over, right? If you diversify away all the pain, all you should expect to earn is is the painless return, which is the risk-free rate. You know, your risk-free U.S. short-term government bonds, if you think U.S. government bonds are risk-free. Um, right? So there's some limits here, theoretical, philosophical limits as to how much pain you can ultimately get rid of. And as tough as it is to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to subject my portfolio to day-to-day -day volatility and once in every while there's going to be some shocks that is the pain that allows you to harvest the long-term return premium. Um, and I think it's really important to keep that in the back of our minds. Oh, that's great. And that's, uh, that's the full hour, Corey. If uh, somebody wants to get in touch with you or they want to read some of your research, follow you on Twitter, uh, we'll have those details in the show notes. But do you want to just let everybody know now? Twitter handle, for example? Yeah. Twitter handle is C. Hofstein. So first letter, last name. Uh, it's about 80%. Finance stuff, 20% coffee and working out and snowboarding and random family stuff. Uh, you can also find me. So I publish a weekly research commentary on our blog, which is blog.thinknewfound.com. Uh, you can go there and subscribe. Um, most of what we talk about is not what's going on in the markets. It's not what's going on in the economy. It's more... Let's do some deep dives, some quantitative analysis on these different style premia, portfolio construction, risk management, craftsmanship topics, things that are a little more evergreen. Um, it can get pretty wonky, I'll admit. Uh, but if you hang on long enough, I hopefully try to distill it down and, and circle the drain on a lot of these topics from a lot of different angles. Uh, and then you can find my personal email on that website as well if you want to reach out. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks very much, Corey. Really appreciate the time and the, uh, the thoughtful uh, ideas. Thank you for having me, Toby. It's been fun.